section below, you can go into Children's Church. Miss Nancy Goss is going to be teaching this morning. And you can meet her at the back door or out in the hallway, second grade and below. Children's Church is going to be a good time. Parents, they just go right down the hall. They stay in the building. Thank you, Miss Nancy. And Hunter, it looks like, is going to be helping too. All right. Well, if you have your Bible or something that opens the Bible, please open it up to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Do you know what it would be like if people knew that tomorrow was the end of the world? Can you imagine what the headlines would say if there was going to be no tomorrow whatsoever? One of the things I think that would come out were, would be something of, like, of this nature. Do whatever you want. There's no consequences. You'll have nothing to answer for because tomorrow the world is going to end. You see this mentality every time there's a natural disaster or or some sort of a tragedy happens and those with little to no moral or ethical values go to looting and destroying without any holds bar. And just general mass chaos erupts. If you knew there was no tomorrow, nothing to answer for, and the end was coming, how would you respond? How should we respond? As followers of Christ, we are to be different. We're not supposed to live for our own desires, for our own fleshly satisfaction, but we are to live for the glory of God, promoting and proclaiming His gospel above our own. Even if there is no tomorrow, we are to still live for Him today. And in our scripture this morning, the Apostle Peter gives us some principles by which we should live, not because the world may end tomorrow, although it could, but because the end is coming soon and our Lord will soon return and this is not to excuse us to live recklessly but to live in such a way that others take notice like last week Peter gives us a list a list of lifestyles or a list of choices last week it was some bad choices this week we'll see a list that stands in direct contradiction to that list instead of immorality we'll see a list that promotes the, the principles and the characteristics and the attributes that God wants to have in his people. Well, let's read our scripture, and then we'll get into this. 1 Peter chapter 4, we'll be reading verses 7 through 11. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong all glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pause a moment for prayer, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for 1 Peter and the Apostle and, and his teaching to us that is inspired by you. Father, I pray that, that in this time we would grasp hold of these principles, which really are nothing earth-shattering. They're, they're nothing new. They're perhaps things that we've thought about before. But as we consider that the, the end may come at any moment, Lord, we would understand the deep need for the world to see this displayed in us. And what a tribute and what a testimony it is to the change you make in our lives from darkness to light. 
Father, would you change us? Heavenly, Holy Spirit, would you, would you change us from the inside out? Let your word do a miraculous work on each and every one of us in this place. And it is in your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. So you'll notice in verse 7, he uses the word, therefore, again. We've had this word a lot in the book of 1 Peter. I'm beginning to think he's the apostle of therefore. Anytime we see the word therefore, we need to ask the question, what is it therefore? Okay, one person got it. So what is it therefore? And initially what he is doing is he's looking back on his initial statement. The end of all things is at hand. And since the end of all things is at hand, therefore, this is how you should live. This is what you should do about. But we've got to pause a moment and ask the question, does Peter really believe that the end is about to come? If Peter is divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, how could he write verse 7, and yet the end has not come, when he says plainly, the end is at hand. I want to address that real quickly before we move on with these lifestyle principles that we need to apply because the end is at hand. And ask the question or answer the question, was Peter mixed up here? Did he get the message wrong from the Holy Spirit? I don't think he did. I don't believe he did. And I know he didn't. I'll give you three reasons. First off, this was a missional motivational statement. The fact is, is that the end is coming soon. We don't know when it might be. The Bible tells us that Jesus said, only the Father knows when the end is coming. Jesus may and come back at any moment. It could be in the next five minutes. It could be, unfortunately be before we have fried chicken for lunch. Or it may be next year. We just don't know. But we need to live in such a way that God can use the testimony of our lives to draw the lost to salvation in Him. So understand what Peter is doing is he's giving us missional motivation. That we don't wait until we think the end is coming and start living for Christ, but we start right now because the end is near. But again, how can we say that if the end has still not happened? And Peter wrote this nearly 2,000 years ago. Was Peter wrong? Peter wasn't wrong. Because the end is near. The fact is, folks, we don't view time in the same way that God views time. We see 50 years as a long time ago. Some of our young people would say 10 years ago was a really long time. My kids have been waiting for Sunday because they get to go to camp today, and the last three days have been the longest time of their lives. We don't view time in the same way that God views time because He exists outside of the confines of time. He has no beginning and He has no end. In fact, He is the beginning and the end. So for Him, time has little consequence, and Peter knew this. That's why later in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, he's going to quote a psalm. He says this, To the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. Time is not the same to God as it is to us. And despite sci-fi movies that we love, there will never be a such thing as time travel. There will never be an opportunity for us to exist outside and above time, because to do so would make us somewhat like God. And folks, we will never be like God. His time is not like ours. He exists above and beyond it. And then finally, was he wrong in saying this? No, Peter was inspired by God, not only in writing this letter, but in his understanding of the end times. You see, Peter is one of the apostles that got to spend a lot of time with the Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. And one of the things that 
Jesus Christ taught his disciples was that the moment he showed up on earth, the end times had been ushered in. That was the beginning of the end of all things. Now, it may seem silly to us to say that because it was 2,000 years ago, but remember point number two, our, uh, our idea of time is nothing like God's idea of time. So since Peter was right and the end is upon us, although we don't know what that end is or when that end is coming, what should we do? Should we live it up? Should we live it up until the very last moment? Of course not. And so he gives us four lifestyle choices here in verses 7 through 11 that we need to apply to our life, that the Christian needs to be making in light of the end of all things that will soon be coming. And these are not earth-shattering. I told you in my prayer, I said, Lord, these aren't earth-shattering. You're not going to be like, wow, I never thought about that. The first one is this, pray. Christian, we need to be a people of prayer. And that seems simple enough, just to spend time in prayer. When I think about the example of Jesus, you know what is so interesting to me? Jesus was fully human, and he was fully God. And yet throughout the gospel, we read a statement like this, and he left them to go spend time in prayer. Or he uh, 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 isolated himself away from everyone else so he could spend time in prayer. Here the Son of God, God in flesh himself, is spending time in prayer. And if we are a people that follow Jesus Christ, we need to be following his example and making our top priority to be people of prayer. So what does that mean? Does Peter give us what we should specifically be praying about? He doesn't. And unfortunately, I think sometimes the majority of our prayers focus on these things. Blessing the food, sick friends and family, problems in our life, praying against others, thankful for the blessings that we receive that others don't, or maybe you're praying right now for a shorter sermon. These are some of the things that I think they, 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 they fill up our prayer lives. And my question is, is this all we're supposed to be praying for? And I'm not putting you down if you pray these things. We certainly should be blessing our food. Don't pray for a shorter sermon. It's, you know, it's just not going to happen. Amen. But are these the only things that should be filling up our prayers? This word in the Greek language actually means to praise. When was the last time you just spent time in prayer filled with praising God for who He is and what He does? Exalting Him and just saying, God, I am just amazed at this, that you've done in my life, or that you're doing in so-and-so's life. Lord, I'm so grateful and amazed that you saved me because I didn't deserve it. When was the last time we spent time just praising in prayer all that God does? When we consider all that he has done and continues to do for us. Though he doesn't give us specifics on what to pray, Peter does give us specifics on how to pray. In my version, it says watchful and serious. Serious and watchful. Some of your translations might say self-controlled and sober or even awake. You know what I'm reminded of? I'm reminded of that time in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus had led all of his disciples, all but Judas, out to the Garden of Gethsemane and asked them to stay here and pray. And he led a couple of more of them a little further along and asked them to sit there and pray. And then he went off by himself again to spend time in prayer. And when he came back, what were they doing? Were they praying? They were sleeping, weren't they? He came back a couple of times, and each time they were sleeping. And one of the last final moments, he tells them this, Matthew 26, 41, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You see, for Jesus, the purpose of prayer was, was often this, to offer his life over to God's service. If we're modeling Jesus, that should be a prayer that we constantly pray. God, I want my life to be yours for your service. Aligning his will with God's will. So often, I mean, we're human. We have fleshly choices that we want to make every day, and we need to spend time in prayer saying, God, what is your will for my life? I want your will to be my will. When Jesus offers up the prayer in Matthew 6, he says, not your will, but mine be done. No, he says, what does he say? Uh, Our heavenly Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy will be done. Messed up that quote there, but that's okay. You're gracious people, right? Praying not only for that, but also praying about making us aware, God, of things that keep us from prayer. Distractions of the world, concerns of our own lives, sinful temptations. These are things that we need to make a part of our regular daily prayer life. As often as you pray for your food, you should be praying, Lord, keep me from evil. Lord, lead me away from temptation. Lord, give me the spiritual strength to see the way of escape you provided and to take that way of escape because, God, I want to bring glory to your life instead of acting out on righteous thoughts and actions and attitudes every single day. Church, the end is coming. And God's people should be characterized chiefly as being a people of prayer. Number two, love. Again, this is not earth-shattering, mind-blowing stuff. Because the end of all things is coming. We need to be more than ever to be a people of love. Once again, this reminds me of Jesus. How often he taught on the concept of love. I wonder as Peter was writing this, if he was remembering some of Jesus' teachings. We, We see them in the Gospels. For instance, John chapter 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Or perhaps John 15, 13, no greater commandment or no greater love has anyone than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Or perhaps Matthew chapter 5, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Over and over throughout God's word, we see that God's people are to be characterized as being a people of love. In the New Testament, the Greek word normally is agape. Or phileo, a brotherly love, mutual respect. We'll get to that in just a second. In the Old Testament, it's hesed, a covenantal love, a, 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 an everlasting love, a steadfast love. What's so interesting about both of these loves is they are God's love for his people. And our ability to love others comes from the God who loves us. Romans 5.5 5 tells us that God pours his love into us through the, through the Holy Spirit, who we receive when we are born again when we surrender to Jesus as Savior and Lord. This is not a love characterized by warm fuzzies and feelings of goodness. It is a love that overcomes. Peter adds, in my version, the word fervently, that we love fervently. His reminder to us is to be a people of love is not to be haphazardly or happenstance love. In other words, we don't love each other by accident, but it is a purposeful love. It is a love with a mission. It is a love that overcomes all wrongs. It's a love that is not, uh, it is not deterred by your actions against me or for me or your actions, period. 
And this is why Peter quotes this proverb, love covers over a multitude of sins. He wasn't saying that our love sweeps sin under the rug or that our love winks at sin, oh, it's okay. But that no matter what your sin is, whether it's against me or just period, I can still love you. Not because I'm a loving individual, but because a very loving God has poured out his love into me. In these end times, our love can be a marvelous witness to the world. But how is this? Because we might look at this word love and see this very vast, broad term. What, what is love, though? You start thinking about several of the characteristics. For instance, from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. What, is, what does Paul tell us, the, the, the author of 1 Corinthians? That love is kind. Love is patient. Love is forgiving. Love never fails. Love endures. All of these things are characterized under this blanket gift from God of love. And so our love for one another is characterized not by warm, fuzzy feelings, but the ability to forgive, the ability to be kind, the ability to be generous, the ability to be patient with one another. Church, how are you loving others? Is your love for one another conditional on their love for you? How would you describe the love you have for other people, not only in your life, but outside of your life? This is a lifestyle principle for end times because of the wonderful witness that it can be to the world. To see us loving one another purposely, intently, and deeply, despite wrongs in one another's life. And let's be honest, every single one of us, you don't have to raise your hand, you don't need to, but every single human being has wronged another human being. Amen? Every single one of you. None of you are above. None of us. None of me. I'm not above it. We've all wronged someone. But it does not negate the call to love fervently. Somewhere around you, there is someone that needs that love. Someone in this church, or someone in your life, they're hurting, They've been hurt, trying to get over hurt. They need to hear that you love them. They need to see that you love them. Number three, be hospitable. I love this word. I think it's missing from the church, hospitality. This word has its root, the same word that we translate the word brotherly love from, phileo. And it can literally be translated loving strangers, or generosity to guests. It's really a very easy application. Our calling is not just to love one another in our own little circle of influence, but that we would be loving to everyone. Again, reminds me of Jesus when he's asked what the, two, what the most important commandments are. He says the second one is this, love your neighbor as yourself. The English word hospitable is also a great translation for us. This is not from a Greek word, it's from a Latin word. In the Latin root of hospitality, we also get our English words for hospital, host, and hotel. You think about the service implied with those words, hospital, host, and hotel. You know, hospitals were birthed out of a deep spiritual conviction to show kindness and love and generosity to those who were physically injured and needed help. 
Who was it that taught Peter the correlation of love and showing generosity to strangers? Jesus did. When asked about his command to love your neighbor as yourself and how to define your neighbor, he told the story of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan who found a stranger on the side of the road who doctored him, like in a hospital, who hosted him onto his animal and housed him in a hotel until the hurt man was well. Now, what would be awesome is that each of you left here this morning with a, a new mission in life. You are going to leave this place and look for some stranger on the side of the road to be generous to. That would be totally, it would be awesome to, to hear about this on social media. Found a hitchhiker and helped, okay, maybe stay away from that if you're a lady. But you know what I'm saying, helping a stranger out. Wow, that would be awesome. But we don't have to have a stranger necessarily in our life to show kindness and generosity hospitality. We can practice this lifestyle principle on one another. Because, you know, in this church, even though you may know each other, you don't know each other. Because like every Sunday, certain people, they, they come into the, the place and they get into their assigned seats on their assigned side of the sanctuary. What's really funny is sometimes people mix it up on Sunday night, they sit on the opposite side. It's like, hey, a little diversity is good. But what ends up happening is, is we have our little circle of people on this side and this little circle of people on this side, and before you know it, you're like, you've got three or four people that you interact with at church and you never see the other side of the sanctuary. Now, we're a small church. Can you imagine what that's like in a mega church, right? But that happens even in our small little church where there's only 80 or 90 people that show up on Sunday. There are strangers within this place. So how about we get out of our comfort zone and get to know people on the other side of the auditorium? How about asking someone over for lunch that you've never spent time with? Getting out of your comfort zone. Now, before you think to yourself, oh man, is the pastor really asking us to do this? Make sure you read all that Peter says about being hospitable. Verse 9, without grumbling. Oh man, you know what grumbling is, right? griping, without complaining, be hospitable. I told you this is really missing from the church. You know, there's just something wonderful and loving to hear about church members getting together and having coffee and pie or having lunch together. Man, what a, a certain amount of unity there is in that. What is also missing is that generally it's just one-sided. It seems like some people just keep receiving hospitality over and over and never giving it back out. Never giving back out that generosity. But this command has got a great scriptural connection. This word, to do so without grumbling, to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 through 7. Paul says this, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not grudgingly, not reluctantly, not grumbling or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Could you imagine if the Good Samaritan had bandaged the man on the side of the road and been griping the entire time? I can't believe you got yourself into this situation. What are you thinking, you stinking Jew? Could you imagine him taking the man to the hotel and putting him up and paying the innkeeper and the innkeeper charging him and the man griping about the hotel rate? I can't believe you're charging me. Can't you at least give me a tax deduction? Come on, I'm helping this guy out. It's charitable. 
No, we can't. Because Jesus was telling us what it meant to love our neighbor and to truly love our neighbor. We must do so without grumbling, complaining, and griping. Let me ask you, when was the last time you showed this kind of generosity without grumbling at that moment? Or perhaps later to someone who just needed to hear you vent. Church, our ministry to one another is made complete when we do so with a cheerful attitude that counts it as an honor and a blessing for, our, for us when we can give generously to others. Let me tell you, in the end times, the world needs to see a church that is being hospitable to each other. But instead, what do they end up seeing and hearing? They hear the church tearing down one another. They hear the church eating each other up verbally. They hear the church grumbling and griping and finding things to complain about. They hear the church passing on rumors about one another. They see the church splitting over minutia. They need the witness of the church in these end times. Number four, we need to minister our spiritual gifts. It says minister your gifts in my version. Minister your gifts. But that word for gifts points us towards the Holy Spirit. You see, when we surrender to Jesus as our Savior and Lord, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us, to reside in us. And part of His being in us is that He bestows on all believers spiritual gifts. The word there for gifts is the word charisma, which literally means grace gift or a gift of grace, implying a gift that has been given to you out of God's grace. He has flowed it down to you. You didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. But He gives us these gifts. Now, what are these gifts? Are they bicycles and video games? No, no, no. They're spiritual gifts to be used for spiritual matters. In fact, Peter tells us that we are to use these gifts, what? To minister to one another. You see, the point of spiritual gifts is not to flaunt it. It's not to go about saying, look what the Lord has given to me. I am so awesome. But it is to take that gift and to find ways that we can serve one another's. Some of these gifts are changing and evolving. Some people have multiple gifts. Some people only have one, and that's okay. The idea here is that these spiritual gifts are to be used serving one another within the context of the church. Not just in this building, I'm not saying that. But within the body of Christ, these gifts are to be used. Are you serving? Are you ministering to others with your spiritual gifts? Because Peter refers to this as being a good steward, which means to be a manager of that gift of grace. And that means that we recognize that this spiritual gift isn't really ours. It's on loan from the Lord. He's given it to us to use for His glory and for His purposes. But if we don't use it, you know what's going to happen? We're going to lose it. And God's gift to us, for us to manage, is, is to be used to how He directs us for His glory for his purposes, being a good steward of God's manifold grace. That's a funny phrase, God's manifold grace. If you ever mess with cars, you might know what a manifold is, right? For instance, like an exhaust manifold. An exhaust manifold takes all of the uh, excess, uh, burned off fumes from the engine, from all the cylinders, and puts them into one little tube and basically spits them out in a muffler. I'm not a mechanic. I'm sure it's much more complex. Jimmy could probably explain it to us a lot better than what I just did, but that's essentially what it means. In fact, this word uh, manifold means various parts of one whole. The manifold grace of God. 
God's manifold grace. You see, manifold grace means that God pours all these gifts out on his people for the purpose of using them together. I kind of think of like a rainbow. You're going to make fun of me because I'm going to forget all the colors of the rainbow, but there's like several colors of the rainbow. And if only all you had was like purple, you wouldn't have a rainbow, would you? You'd have a bow, right? <laughs> you need all the colors of the rainbow for it to be really and truly a rainbow. You see, God has given each believer a unique and varied gift for a purpose, to minister that gift to the benefit of others and specifically for that to happen within the confines of the body of Christ, the church. But like the rainbow, if some of us decide to keep our gifts at home, if some of us decide to never use our gifts and not minister them, we rob the church of the joy of being what God had gifted the church to be. And it's like purple and green decided to stay home. Those are colors of the rainbow, right, Kathleen? All right, good. Sometimes I, get, I put brown in there, and she's like, that's not a color of the rainbow. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> now, Peter only lists two gifts here. He talks about speaking, and he talks about ministering. He's not necessarily saying that these are the only two that he wants to talk about, but what he's doing is he's just talking about two different gifts. These would literally be like two completely different colors of the rainbow. And he's specifying by what these mean, these two gifts, are to be used. If you speak, speak the Word of God. There's a lot of useless things that people talk about nowadays. There's a lot of things that people just want to keep talking about and, 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 and just keep on heaping up, you know. It seems like everywhere I go, people want to talk about the meat processing plant. I mean, come on, it's become the elephant in the room. Somebody asked me my point of view, and I said, man, I got, I'm a preacher of the gospel, and let me just do that, okay? I want to just stick to that. Listen, I pray quite often that God would direct us in Sunday school, because so often what happens is people want to get off on a tangent and start talking about issues that are in their life or issues in the community or current events. The only thing that changes lives is the gospel of God. He calls it the oracles of God, the, the word of God, the the, the speech of God. God's word is what he's talking about. And then he says, if anyone ministers, let him do so by the ability that God supplies. Because when we rely on God's strength, guess who gets the glory? God does. And that is who we want to get the glory. When we do good works for his glory, the world will see these good works. And what does the Bible tell us? They will glorify our God in heaven. Church, are you being a part of the rainbow of God's glory? You see, speaking and ministering kind of just sums up everything the church is called to do. You could break ministering out in a number of ways. You could break speaking out in a number of ways. But what it comes down to is, are you allowing God to use you and gift you for his purposes? In these end times, the world desperately needs Christians using, ministering, serving others with the spiritual gifts he has given them. So now what? What do we do because of this? I want you to notice what Peter does not tell us to do. In these verses, he never exhorts us to go and share the gospel with the lost. I find that interesting. The end is coming. Shouldn't we go and tell people about the, the gospel of Jesus Christ? I find that interesting because their time up may soon be coming. But then I want you to think back to that list we looked at last week. That list in 
verse 3. Do you remember that list in verse 3? Let me just read it for you, the second half of the verse. He says, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable fooleries, or idolatries. I'm sorry. I'm sorry there. And I want you to understand how these lifestyle principles that we looked at this morning stand in direct contradiction to the lifestyles of the fleshly lust that we looked at last week. That instead of lusting, we should be loving. Instead of throwing wild orgies, we need to spend time in prayer. Instead of looking for ways to get drunk and get drunk with others, we should be looking for an opportunity to be hospitable and generous and showing brotherly kindness and love. If we will apply these four lifestyles of prayer, love, showing hospitality, and ministering our spiritual gifts, it will be a witness unto itself. Not replacing the witness of our testimony of salvation in Christ, but backing up the message we proclaim. Because if I tell you over and over and over again, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, but then the rest of the week I'm living a life of lust and idolatry and drunkenness, which lifestyle will you believe? In these end times, the world needs to see believers not only proclaiming that, but living that out as well, to back up the message we proclaim. And this is Peter's proclamation at the end of the scripture, in verse 11. He says that in all things God may be glorified. You see, if God is being glorified and lifted up through our lifestyle choices, through our prayers and through our love and through our hospitality and through our ministering the spiritual gifts we have been given, then God will be glorified and they will hear the truth of the gospel. These lifestyles that we are called to are not just a nice way to get along with one another. They aid us in what I believe is our greatest calling and purpose, to bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. That is our greatest purpose. Because if I'm not glorifying God, who am I glorifying? I can't save anybody. I can't save anybody. My hope and my prayer, church, is that we will be a body that exudes these lifestyles and causes others to look at our lives and say, look at the difference that Jesus has made in my life. And I'm living this way because the end is soon coming. It could happen any moment. And I want you to hear and see the gospel lived out as much as possible so that you can turn and give glory to God as well. That's my hope and prayer, church. Bow with me in a word of prayer. We're going to have a time of invitation. Let me ask you, have you ever surrendered to Jesus as Savior and Lord? Has there ever been a time when you said, I need you, Lord. I'm, I'm a sinner who is lost in my sin. And I am separated because of that sin from you, Lord. And I recognize you are the only way of salvation. Have you ever made that confession? Have you ever surrendered to Jesus as Savior and Lord? We're going to have a time of invitation. We're going to have a time of prayer, and I pray that during this invitation, you'd come forward and make that decision for Jesus today. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for how you bless us. Lord, you pour out love. Lord, you pour out manifold graces to us, gifts to us to use for your glory. 
Lord, you don't just say live this way and do it by willpower, but you actually pour out into us the ability to do these things. When we realize that it's not by our power that we live for you, but it's by your power that all the glory goes to you. Thank you for that. Heavenly Father, I pray for those in this place today that have never surrendered to you as Savior and Lord. Lord, they would just let go of whatever it is they're holding on to that's keeping them from making that decision and understand that tomorrow may be too late. And they really need, they really need to make you their Lord and their Savior today. They could do that this morning. Father, I pray that your name would be glorified in this place, that your will be done during this time of invitation. It's your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Would you stand?